That was awesome, amazing. <laughs> we don't intentionally have so many announcements, but it just naturally happened that way. Uh, just a very busy season, a lot of different people uh, doing different ministries in the church, amen. Okay, well, before we get into the message, I actually wanted to read a couple scriptures and then pray for the terrible conflict that's going on in Israel right now and is growing each day. But I just felt very convicted that we needed to spend a brief time in prayer But before we do, uh, let me just read from Psalm 83, which is a clear description of what I believe we're seeing today. But in scripture, all of this has already been laid out. But when Psalm 83 was written, which was probably during the reign of King David, this situation described in the Psalm was not actually happening at that time. So the Psalmist was not writing something that they were facing themselves. But Bible scholars say that this Psalm was actually written to describe an overall reality for Israel. You could say a future reality that will be with Israel until their Messiah returns. A Messiah, by the way, they have not accepted yet, Jesus. But let me read this Psalm, Psalm 83, one through eight. But it says, O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assur also has joined them. These are all local nations surrounding Israel. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. So surprisingly, this psalm describes the ongoing reality Israel will be facing all throughout their existence, even today, and it basically says many nations surrounding them will be plotting to destroy them, like we're seeing right now. And there will be a lot of bloodshed and suffering, but God, if you read the rest of that psalm and elsewhere in the Bible, God ultimately promises to deliver Israel. He will deliver them and punish the hostile nations when Jesus returns, and yet it's so surprising. We just heard it. But even in the midst of that, the psalmist said what? He made a plea for the people within those hostile nations to be saved. So even as God is going to deliver Israel, ultimately they are undefeatable. God said, I'm going to save. I want to save those people within those hostile nations. And so this is the word of the Lord. And then Paul said in the New Testament, I want to read something else, Romans eleven twenty five, Lest you be wise in your own conceits. In other words, just in case you might become conceited, and dismiss Israel, see Israel as irrelevant. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. So that's God's promise, that one day, all of Israel is gonna be saved. And so we're waiting for that day. That day will come when Jesus returns and they will look upon the one they pierced, Zechariah said. Zechariah literally mentioned the one whom they pierced. They're going to mourn when they see him. 
He wrote that long before Jesus came. And when Jesus finally returns, all Israel will be saved. So brothers and sisters, I know we have probably have been seeing a lot of news these days. There's a lot going on, but I just wanted to clarify what God says and how God sees everything that's going on. And so with that, let's just bow before the Lord, and I just want to say a prayer for this terrible, horrific conflict that is unfolding right now in the Middle East with Israel and her neighbors. And from what we can tell, it's gonna grow. And this is just the beginning. This will just be one iteration of many to come. But Father God, we just come before you right now, Lord, and we just wanna lift up, Father God, to you what you call in your word the treasured ones. And yes, Lord God, we are now spiritual Israel, the church, the believers in Jesus Christ, Yeshua, the Savior, the Messiah, your Son. We are your treasured ones. But Lord God, but your word makes it so clear. Paul actually warns us believers today, don't dismiss Israel. Don't become, become conceited. Because one day, all of them will be saved. And so, Lord God, we know that you are still looking upon them. You are looking upon them even as a nation. And Lord God, not everything that they do is perfect or even of you, but we know they are your treasured ones, Lord God. And what they have endured recently, what they have gone through is horrific, God. We can't even imagine, Lord God, having to suffer through something like that with our own families, our own friends and loved ones in our own neighborhoods. And yet, Lord God, you will preserve them. And Lord God, I pray that you will guide them, that you will be with their leaders even right now, Lord God. Some of them, Lord God, even through some maybe vague faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are looking to you for guidance. Others, Lord God, they may just be hell-bent on retribution. Lord God, whatever it may be, Lord God, we pray for mercy upon the leaders of Israel that you would guide them, O God. Lord God, that you would just rest your heavy hand upon them even as they plan right now to invade Gaza, that you would, Father, be with them, Father God. Father, be with this nation, O God, that you have had such a long history with, O God. And please have mercy. Please, O God. And Father God, we pray for the families and all the people who have suffered, Father God, in the recent days, and even the hostages right now. We pray for them, Father God. Please, be with them. And I pray even right now, Father God, whatever circumstance they may be in, I pray that you will bring somebody nearby, maybe a family member, maybe a fellow hostage right next to them to share the gospel. Father God, I believe that there are believers right in the midst that they will share the gospel in the midst of these atrocities. Please, oh God, we pray. Somehow, through somebody, they will hear the gospel that will save their souls. So that even if, even if they lose their lives, they will find eternal life. So Lord God, please, share the gospel. And Father God, we want to also pray for the innocent 
Palestinians, Father God, because we know, Father God, not everyone aligns with the evil, Father, that has been done. Not everyone aligns with the evil leadership that has hell-bent on destroying Israel. Just like your word said, Father God, there are people who are just trying to live their lives, Father. There are, in fact, even Christians, Palestinian Christians living in that area, in that region. We pray for them, Father. The children as well, Father, they know nothing. We pray for them, Father. Please have mercy. Have mercy upon them. Our heart breaks, Father, when we see what is happening. So please, Father, we feel helpless, but we know we are praying to an almighty God. So Lord God, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the clarity. You are not caught off guard. This has been prophesied long in advance that this would happen. And there are still greater prophecies yet that one day all of Israel will be saved. And even in the midst of those hostile nations, you are wanting to save those people. People out of those hostile nations. So Lord God, we love you. We thank you. And all these things we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, praise God. Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, 17 through 22. 2 Peter chapter 2, 17 through 22. Okay. If you're joining us here in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. Okay, this is God's word. 2 Peter chapter 2, 17 through 22. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become far worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow or pig after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. We give you all the glory. We ask that you would, Father, please speak through your word. We thank you so much for the privilege to live in this country at this time where we can, for now, gather freely and hear your word every week. So, Lord, let us not waste this opportunity, but let us open our ears wide. Let us hear what you have to say to your church. Father, please speak through this word. Anoint this word. Open our hearts wide so that we may receive. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we began the final part of 2 Peter chapter 2. And so we're going to be wrapping up chapter 2 today. I know I said last week we're going to wrap it up. But today we truly are. And here in this portion, Peter is reminding believers one more time about the dangers of false teaching. Amen. So Peter is a good shepherd. He knows how to repeat himself. And if you remember, this is what Peter's been doing all throughout chapter 2. But he's been cycling through these few points that he's reminding and hammering home again and again. And these are the three points that he's going back to. 
the character of the false teachers is utterly corrupt. He made that clear. Their teachings are deceptive and destructive. And finally, God's judgment is surely coming upon them. So those are the three points that he mentioned at the very beginning of chapter 2. And then he's been cycling through that, repeating it, expanding on them again and again. So in our passage today, Peter, the faithful shepherd, circled back one more time to expand and warn the church about seductive teachings from false teachers. So this is what he's doing. And why so much repetition? Okay, what's the deal, Peter? We get it, right? Well, I believe the reason why Peter repeats himself so much here is because he knew believers can lack discernment. They can lack discernment. And even the slightest influence, if you lack discernment, if you're a believer who doesn't really know the truth, you're not familiar with the Bible, even the slightest influence can turn into a mountain of deception. Peter knew that. I've actually seen it firsthand. But many years ago, I remember one of my family members, an extended family member, he grew up a Jehovah's Witness, but at some point in his life, he began to seek the truth. He was wondering more about God and who he is. And I remember he actually even told me about that. And he said, you know what? I've been trying to like even go to a church. And so he's been looking around. And then he told me that not long before, he had gone to a bookstore to look for a Christian book. Because he's seeking, right? And he didn't even know any Christian books. He didn't even know what to look for. And so he went to that bookstore and talked to a young clerk there. And he just asked that person, do you have any Christian books you can recommend? And then that clerk said, yeah, I have something. I know exactly what you might want. And then he gave him a book by Wayne Dyer. I don't know if you guys have ever listened to him. But he's a popular New Age teacher featured on PBS, other TV channels. And this false teacher... He basically takes everything that he sees as good, whether it's different world religions, secular philosophy, popular self-help teachings, and then he brings it all together. He turned it into just one massive ball of pseudo-religious half-truths and new age ideas. And as far as I can tell, there's no gospel in it. And then he started writing books on it. He started teaching it on television. And then what worried me the most is eventually that teaching got into the hands of my family member. So he bought that book. He took it home. And then he actually showed it to me. And it was full of notes and highlights. I mean, he really digested this material. And he's like, Roy, you gotta look at this stuff, right? And he's actually older than me. He didn't talk like that. He was more respectful, but he talked in a more dignified way. But he's like, you gotta look at this. And I was terrified. I, I'm like, I can't believe this is what you've been reading. And so I eventually got him a different Christian book on the gospel. I don't know if you read it with equal enthusiasm. But the point is, is without discernment, the slightest influence turns into a mountain of deception. You go hurtling down a completely false path. And so Peter knew that. And so by repetition and reminder, Peter wanted to stir up believers to pursue the truth, pursue Christ. Gain discernment. I said last week, I believe that's the point of the entire chapter. Chapter 2 is all about Peter saying, gain discernment. As a believer, you need discernment. Why? Because false teachers and teachers are coming. They're going to come into the church. In fact, they are in the church. He said, in fact, this is why he wrote the letter in chapter 1, verse 13. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder so Peter's reminded the church. He's saying, you got to understand these things. I'm going to repeat them. 
You gotta have discernment. So in our passage, Peter reminded believers again about seductive teaching. This is probably his second or third time going over this again on false teachers. And in verses 17 through 19, Peter gave us the marks of seductive teaching. This is what we looked at last week. The whole message was on the marks of seductive teaching. So in verses 17 through 19, you see these three marks. First, seductive teaching boasts loudly with a kind of, kind of elevated authority. We talked about that, right? But it lacks true spiritual authority. Why? Because that authority only comes from the Bible and they reject the Bible. So they claim to have this elevated authority, but they really don't. And therefore, they have no understanding. So that's the first mark of any false teaching. It's going to be loud. It's going to be confident. It's going to be authoritative. And yet it lacks authority. It lacks understanding. Number two, it offers spiritual food. But it only tempts the flesh. False teaching is so good at honing in at what non-Christians and non-converted people want. And even Christians, what they want in their flesh. But it just hones in on that. Number three, it offers freedom, but it's false freedom. It doesn't set anybody free. So those are the marks of seductive teaching, and they really are seductive. Many Christians don't even know they're hearing it oftentimes. They go to a church for months and months just listening to these things before they realize. But this is what Peter uncovered in those verses. And then in the next following verses, verses 20 through 22, this is what we're going to look at today, he went into the results a seductive teaching, and then finally the antidote or the cure for seductive teaching. So this is what we're going to look at today, and then we're going to just wrap up chapter two finally. So first, we're going to look at the result of seductive teaching, the result of seductive teaching, and that is false conversions, false conversions. So look at verse 22, I'm sorry, 20 through 22. Peter says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mud. So before anything else, we need to answer this question. Who is Peter talking about in these verses? Who is he talking about? Well, some people say these verses are talking about the followers of false teachings, false teachers. And the reason why they say that is because they point to the word escaping in verse 18. If you look at verse 18, it says escaping, which is clearly referring to the followers and then they look at the same word escape in verse 20 and they go, see, verses 20 through 22 must be talking about the same people. These are the followers. So that's one interpretation. Other people say, no, these verses are talking about the false teachers, the false teachers. They point to the word overcome in verse 19. If you go back to 19, you'll see that. It says overcome. They are overcome by the sin, by the flesh. This clearly refers to the false teachers. Then they point to that same word overcome in verse 20. And then they say, see, verses 20 through 22 are talking about the false teachers. So there's completely different interpretations. So which one is it? Are these verses talking about false teachers or their followers? 
And you know what? It probably doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. And the reason is because false conversion, which is what Peter is talking about here, is true of both groups. Whether you're a false teacher or you're a follower of false teachers, whether you're even a, just a Christian sitting in church, quote unquote, this can be true of anybody. So false conversions are rampant and it can be true of anybody. You know, I remember a well-known pastor sharing one time how when he first got to the church that he pastors even to this day, this is many, many decades ago, but when he first got to that church, he said one of the first things he realized was that several people in his leadership team weren't even believers. So he said one of the first things he had to do as a brand new pastor there was he had to share the gospel to his leaders. And so, the, so as unbelievable as that sounds, this is an experience that a lot of people have had. In fact, I even had this experience when we first started this church, although I didn't know at the time. But when we first started this church, we only had eight people with us, my wife and I and eight others, and we started meeting in a living room. And there was a couple that was a part of that church plant. And they're friends of mine, and recently they actually came over to our house and we were talking and catching up. And one of the two out of the couple, that person began to share how when she was reflecting back on that time, she realized, you know what? I don't even think I was a believer. <laughs> and so almost kind of as an apology, she was just sharing, you know, I'm so sorry, but I joined this church plant team and I was trying to, you know, help start the church and I wasn't even a believer. And we're like, oh, okay, thank you for sharing that. That's okay, right? It's all bygone. It's okay. And I feel okay sharing this because she's very open about sharing it with everyone. <laughs> but those are just two examples of how common false conversions can be. But false conversions are everywhere. Now, not every false convert is the product of seductive teaching. I'm not saying that all those people I just talked about were sitting under false seductive teaching. There's more than one reason why somebody might be a false convert in church. But what I am saying is that when you have seductive teaching, when there is a church that is pumping out this kind of seductive, appealing to the flesh type teaching, the result is always going to be false converts, false conversions. And here's why. It's because seductive teaching will always draw people towards Christianity, towards religion, but never towards Christ. That's not their goal. That's not their point. It'll always bring them into the church, but never into true faith. In fact, that's one of the hallmarks of seductive teaching. They never address sin. They never talk, to, talk about repentance or sin or conversion. And so no wonder people who sit under this, they become false converts. And in verses 20 through 22, Peter laid out a clear description of what false converts look like. But he doesn't want us to miss this. But this is what a false convert looks like. So first he said, they have escaped the defilements of the world. Verse 20. So in other words, on the surface, certain things look different for them. False converts will stop going to certain places. They'll stop doing certain things. So he's saying on the surface, yeah, it looks like they escaped the world. They left all the craziness out there. And I remember hearing the testimony of a recent convert to Islam. I like listening to a lot of testimonies. I remember hearing this testimony. He said he was a Muslim before. Or I'm sorry, the other way around. He was a non-Muslim and then he converted to Islam. And I remember him sharing. He's like, my life just changed. I was sleeping around with my girlfriend. I immediately stopped that. I was drinking all the time, got, got drunk all the time. I immediately stopped that. And there was no gospel in that conversion. 
He converted to Islam. And yet his, his life drastically changed. That could produce behavioral change. We also see that with a lot of people who join cults. But their behavior will change, sometimes drastically. But later, the truth is always revealed. Their hearts were still enslaved to sin. What they did was they merely exchanged one sin for a different sin. They exchanged drinking and sleeping around to now pride and moralism or whatever it may be. And so Paul said this is one of the marks of false converts. Is on the surface, it looks like they escaped the world, the entanglements of the world. This change of behavior, by the way, can also happen to Christians, quote unquote, people sitting in Christian churches. But Peter said in verse 21, these false converts can also know the way of righteousness. In other words, they know what God wants. So there are false converts sitting in churches, God forbid, but even here, and people know. Yeah, I think this is what God wants. This is the will of God. And for a time, they will follow it. So they will buy a Bible, right? Things can change. People come to church and things can change. They will buy a Bible. They will even carry the Bible to Bible study. They will be asked to pray and they'll pray. They will serve at church. They will even help start a church, amen? They'll even help start churches. And false converts can do all these things for a season. So yes, it can happen to even people sitting in Christian churches, Peter said false converts can also appear to have the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 20. So this goes beyond just a little bit of behavioral change, but they can quote the Bible. They can even lead a Bible study. They can explain to you the gospel with clarity. I'm always surprised when I hear non-Christians describe the gospel more clearly than even believers. It's like, wow, you really know the gospel. And yet in the depths of their hearts, there's no genuine faith. They don't really believe in what they say. So how is this possible? How can someone have all the signs of being saved and yet not be saved? Well, in a way, this is the same question as somebody asking, how can someone like Judas be possible? It's the same question. So if you're asking, how can all this be possible, Roy? Really? People sitting in Christian churches look like Christians, can quote you the gospel and the Bible, but they're not really saved? Well, that's the same question as, how is Judas possible? Because he was. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. But get this. He was also one of the disciples who were sent out two by two to preach the gospel and cast out unclean spirits. So Jesus said, at one point in his ministry, I'm going to give you authority to preach the gospel and cast out demons. And Judas, it never singles him out as somebody who didn't get that. He apparently got that authority as well. So he did those things. So here we... He was there. And then at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, no one thought it was Judas. Nobody had a clue. Instead, all the disciples there said, is it me, Lord? Surely it's not me, right? Jesus, it's not me, is it? No one pointed to Judas saying, oh, it's so obvious. It's Judas sitting in the corner there, dressed in all black, right? Counting the money. I mean, nobody said that because he wasn't doing that. And so if Judas was able to pass the smell test by nearly everyone but Jesus, and he ministered beside Jesus and nobody could tell the difference, then couldn't it be entirely possible that there are many people in churches today who are false converts and nobody knows? Could that be possible? 
especially in the last days that we live in, where there's a pandemic of false teaching. Okay, we all know what that word means now, so I can use it. But a pandemic of false teaching. Don't you think there are false converts in churches even today? Of course there are. More than ever before. So Peter makes it very clear. These are the marks of false converts on the outward surface. They have all these things that other believers have and yet they are still false. So how can you know if you and I or anyone else is a false convert? How can you know? Right, because again, this is the result of seductive teaching. Every time, you're gonna see false converts. Well, in the New Testament, we see several indicators of false conversion. The Bible is very clear on this. It sees it as very important that we understand the indicators of false conversion. So let me just mention three. But there are three clear indicators of false conversion. First, fruitlessness. Fruitlessness. Jesus made this point several times. Matthew 13, 18 through 21. But this is the parable of the soils, but, but just hear what he says. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is what one hears. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now I know a lot of Christians, when they read this parable, I've even sat in Bible studies or retreats where, where they open up the Bible, they read this parable, and they go, okay, now everyone, which soil are you, right? And I go, oh, well, in the past, I didn't do that because I didn't know what it was about. But this is not about different soils that Christians can have. But Jesus was talking about different soils that show whether you are truly converted or not. And three of the soils are people who are not converted, even though they might seem like they are, and only one soil is the converted soil, the true believer, and so the first three soils are hearts that have no salvation, no life in them. And how do you know? They don't produce fruit. They're fruitless. So just quickly, the first heart was the hardened soil. Jesus says this is the first kind of person who is unconverted. But these people do not understand God's word when they hear it. And so what do they do? They reject it immediately. So even in church, right, there are a lot of people in churches like this. They come to church, okay, I don't know, I just need some encouragement today. They're sitting, they're like, what is he talking about? Reject. You're the heart and soil. And so there's no fruit. And again, people all across America, in fact the world, are sitting in churches with this kind of heart. This is a false convert. The second heart is the rocky soil. These people hear the word with joy. Yes, false converts can have joy in church. They can be down and then come to church and be like, oh, I'm so down. Oh, I'm happy suddenly, right? There's joy. I like the song. I even kind of like the sermon, right? He seems energized. And there can even be a little bit of joy hearing the word. But that joy quickly goes away as quickly as it came. Why? Because the seed of God's word did not go deep enough 
They only heard the word superficially and they never truly trusted in it. So again, what's the end? No, no fruit. There's just no fruit. Again, this is another false convert. The person who just comes to church, maybe there's even joy for a season and then it goes away. You know, one of the saddest things I experienced as a college pastor, because I led a college ministry for many years before starting this church, is seeing students like that. They come to church and they're just so excited, right? They, they even jump up and down. <laughs> I remember one time there was this person jumping up and down in one of our services and then later you talk to them, I talk to them, and it's like, I'm not even a believer, <laughs> right? It's like, wow, okay. But just seeing people like that coming through the ministry, that's rocky soil. Jesus said that's a non-convert. The third heart is the thorny soil. The thorny soil. These people receive the word. They actually have a level of faith. It goes in, but they never make it their top concern. Why? They have other concerns. They have other things going on in their lives. They have other priorities. They're bigger priorities. And most people would call these people average Christians in America. Amen? They go, yeah, these are just average Christians. In fact, I'm like this. But Jesus said, no, if these people continue like this, they are actually false converts. These are also false converts. Why? Because how can the eternal salvation of your soul, how can following the Son of God and his purpose for your life, how can that not be a top priority? How can that not be an all-consuming concern? Of course, you have other concerns. Of course, you do other things in life. But how can that not always be at the very top of your list? And if Christ and his word never at any point in your life takes top priority, if Christ never becomes the top concern of your life, if his will is never the most urgent thing that you always are focused on, then Jesus said you're not a true convert. And once again, how do you know? Because there's going to be no fruit. You're always going to be going to the next thing, right? The next thing. Yeah, I like church. Yeah, Jesus is you know, cool, but it's just the next thing, the, the next priority, the next concern. So again, there's no fruit. And then finally, Jesus says there's only one heart that produces fruit, which is the good soil. It is the broken and humble heart that hears the word, understands it, and then takes it deeply in. You believe it. You trust in it. And the only way you can know you have done that is you begin to bear fruit. You not only just buy a Bible, but then you begin to read it. You begin to understand and believe in it. You begin to change not only your behavior, but your desires. You begin to bear fruit 10 times, 30 times, 100 times. And so this is the true convert. And in the New Testament, this kind of fruit that proves conversion is always about having the character of Christ and doing the works of Christ. So this is the fruit that Jesus is talking about. The true convert will always begin to look more and more like Jesus and begin to do the things that Jesus did more and more. So fruit is a powerful indicator, brothers and sisters, of true conversion or not. And I know all of you guys check your bank accounts and your weight regularly, or some of you guys check your weight. <laughs> but I know most people check their bank accounts and their weight regularly. But how many of us check the level of fruit in our lives? Okay, we need to be checking the fruitfulness of our lives. So that's the first indicator of a true convert or not. Here's the second indicator, lawlessness. The second indicator of false converts, lawlessness. Look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one 
who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I remember hearing more than one pastor say after reading that, this is the scariest passage in the Bible. I actually agree with them. I mean, we look at all those passages about genocide and God's judgment. I I think this is the scariest one. Because this is talking about a group of people who were fully convinced, I'm in heaven. I know Jesus. I've served him my whole life. And Jesus said, who are you? I don't even know you. Depart. You are not coming into heaven. And so again, notice the incredible things that false converts can have outwardly in this passage. And this could be perhaps even more surprising than the previous passage we looked at. But this group here of false converts, they can have correct theology. Most of us here pride ourselves in having correct theology. But look at Matthew 7.21. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord. These people were calling Jesus Lord. John Stott pointed out, because of the context of Jesus as the son of God and judge in this passage, the title Lord probably was more than just sir. But this title Lord in the Greek meant Yahweh. It was the equivalent of Yahweh. So what that means is these people, these false converts said, Jesus, you're Lord, you're Yahweh, you're God. So they had correct theology. In fact, the Bible says even demons have correct theology and they shudder. But these false converts had correct theology. These false converts also have passionate spirituality. Again, jumping up and down during worship. (laughs) I wish some of that would happen here. (laughs) But a a lot of false converts, they're, they're passionate. They love serving the homeless. They love going out and doing things for God. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We see that same address again later in that passage, verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, that double Lord demonstrates conviction, passion. You're not just saying Yahweh, Lord. You're saying, Lord, Lord, I really believe you're Lord, Jesus. I don't just have this academic belief in you. I really believe this. You're Lord, Lord. And Jesus still said, I don't know you. Who are you? And then perhaps most shocking of all, these false converts have powerful ministry. This one blows me away the most. I mean, people can have academic knowledge of God. I I can understand that. They can even know the Bible. But these people served God in the power of the Spirit. Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? These people were ministers. How many of you guys are not even ministers? These people were ministers. They served God and others, even supernaturally. And by the way, Jesus didn't deny it, right? Jesus didn't say, no, you didn't. He assumed they were telling the truth. And yet, Jesus still said to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here's the big question. How can this be possible? How can there be a group of people who are false converts who are this deceived? How can people professing Christians with correct theology, passionate spirituality, and powerful ministry not be saved? I mean, just imagine this, but if you knew somebody at church 
And these three things really describe them. This person has correct theology. Okay, they're passionate about God. It's not just Lord. It's Lord, Lord. And they serve. They even see, you even see miracles. They even serve in the power of the Spirit. Now, would you be thinking, oh, this person might be a false convert? <laughs> would you be thinking that? I wouldn't. Absolutely not. And yet, Jesus said precisely, that's who these people were. They were false converts. Why? Well, he told us why. It's in one word. They were lawless. They were lawless. Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so in other words, they did everything on their own terms, even learning about God, crying out to God, serving God. All of it was done on their own terms for their own purposes, for their own gain. To put it simply, they were rebellious while being religious. And again, churches are filled with people like this. See, this is a very subtle, it's a seductive thing, right? Again, this is the fruit of seductive teaching, but it's a rebellion that's not out there picketing churches and saying blasphemous things, but it's a subtle rebellion of the heart. Yeah, yeah, God, Jesus, Lord, Lord. I'll even serve. I mean, I'll, I'll sign up for things, but in the depths of your heart, no. I'll do my own thing. And that is the condition of fallen man. At his core, at her core, we are rebellious. And I remember this one pastor saying this, but... <laughs> The Bible is the only book that describes an almighty God who created heaven and earth and commands the stars and the planets. And whatever God commands, the stars do. Whatever God commands, the planets do. And then God creates human beings in his own image and he loves them and then he tells these human beings, now you are in my image, follow me. And then you know what they say? No! <laughs> That's the Bible, basically. <laughs> no! <laughs> That's the no here. Yeah, I'll do anything. I'll serve God. I'll do anything, right? I'll sign up for teams, but in my heart, no. I'm not going to do things God's way. I'm not going to surrender my life for his purpose. I'm making money. I got to advance my career. I got to get into grad school. I never prayed about it. I don't know if this is God's will. I'm, just, I'm going after this, though. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to do things in my life. No. And God says, depart from me. Who are you? Who are you? And so to put it simply, this is rebellion expressed through religion. And by the way, brothers and sisters, religion has always been popular with non-believers. It's number one. The unconverted love religion. It's a booming industry. In fact, the majority of unsaved people in the world are religious. That's why secularism and atheism will never be a dominant movement. The vast majority of people in the world are religious. And yet, because they are not submitted to the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, they don't know God. This is why Jesus again said, I never knew you. So that's the second indicator of false converse. No matter what they're doing, even if they're doing powerful ministry in the name of God, they are lawless. Again, in their hearts, no. No God. And then finally, the third indicator of a false convert is apostasy, apostasy. Look at verse, I'm sorry, this is a different book. Hebrews 6, four through eight. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. It is impossible for people like that. 
if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So again, notice in this passage the incredible things that false converts show on the outside, right? The things that they have and experience. But at one point, these false converts, the writer of Hebrews said, they repented, at least outwardly, So these are people who have repented. They had been enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They shared in the Holy Spirit. That one is the most surprising. Although when you dig a little deeper, the Greek word there, it it has a broad range of meaning. And the most likely meaning there is not so much shared or partake, but it's more like associated influence or affiliated a slight influence so they had a slight influence and affiliation with the holy spirit but nonetheless these were real experiences they tasted they were touched they had a affiliation and yet it never went deep right they tasted but they never feasted and again how do we know that these people are false converts well it's simple they fell away Ultimately, they fell away. They were apostate. That word apostasy means denying Christ, leaving the faith, rejecting something that you once held dear, but they fell away. And sadly, I've seen this. I know people personally who I served with on the mission field for years. I remember even crying out in prayer on the mission field with these people. I remember even going around sharing the gospel with them. Together, we were sharing the gospel. And now, I heard through the grapevine, because we don't really associate anymore, that they had left the faith. They don't go to church anymore. They don't call themselves Christian anymore. So I've seen this firsthand. And if they continue on that path and never come back, the Bible says they were never saved. It doesn't matter how genuine they look. And I know some people genuinely struggle with that. I've even heard pastors online who say, no, but these people were saved. I mean, I knew them. We cried out together. We even fasted. We sought God together. But now they left the church. They left the faith. No, they were believers. But the Bible's clear. No, they were not. They were not. They were false converts. 1 John 2.19 makes it clear. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But because they went out, or but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So it's very clear. The very proof that they left shows that they were never saved. Doesn't matter what they looked like. Doesn't matter how much they cried out, how much they fasted, how much they shared the gospel. They were never saved. So then brothers and sisters, how is any of this possible How can somebody do everything that a true believer does? Even more than some true believers. How can they experience so many of the things that true believers experience and still be lost? Well, Peter tells us in the very passage we read earlier. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, 21. It's because ultimately their nature never changed. They were never transformed. 
As one Bible scholar said, there is a kind of temporal faith that does not come from regeneration. So they were never regenerated. So whatever faith they had, it wasn't coming from regeneration. So look at verse 21 and 22. Peter said, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow or pig after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. So here Peter makes it so clear. It was their nature. It never changed. And he describes that in this interesting proverb. But he talks about pigs and dogs going back to their vomit and going back to the mud. And Peter is saying this is the convert who sits under seductive teaching who somehow got drawn into church, who somehow got touched a little bit, but because they were under seductive teaching, they never heard the gospel, they were never transformed. They never had a new nature. And so here he says, these false converts, they are like dogs who vomit. And by the way, vomiting is a good thing. If you've ever had a stomach flu, you're in pain, you are dying until what? You vomit. And then, oh my gosh, relief, right? That happened to one of my kids recently but suddenly he couldn't sleep and then after throwing up all over the the toilet, he could sleep. So vomit is a good thing. But once all of that filth and that poison comes out, the parable said the dog goes back to it. And pigs, they're washed clean of their mud. That's a good thing, amen? Pigs should be clean. They're so cute, they're pink. But they should be clean. But then after they're cleaned, they go right back to the mud. Why? Because that's what dogs do. That's their nature. After they puke, they go back and lick up their puke. That's just how they are. Why do pigs go back? You could wash them up, put them in a bow tie, put a little cute hat on them, put them in front of a banquet table in your house, and they're going to leave that table and go right back to the mud. Why? That's what pigs do. And as long as a dog remains a dog, as long as a pig remains a pig, they're going to go back to their filth. And so Peter says, this is the false convert. Doesn't matter what happens to them, how much of the Holy Spirit they experience, what touches, what experiences, how happy they got during service, it doesn't matter. Even missions, right? They can even go on missions and pray and cry out to God and do all this stuff. Eventually, they will go back to their filth. They'll go back to the big no in their hearts. No. I like saying that. No. Don't say that. (laughs) Don't say that to God. But they go back to that no. They go back to their sin. And so they can change their clothes, they can change their behavior, they can get a haircut, they can buy a Bible, they can go to church, they can learn theology, they can even want some of these things, but if their nature never changes, they will eventually go back to their sin. And brothers and sisters, Peter says for people like that, people who are drawn to Christianity through seductive teaching, and for people who actually heard the gospel, they actually experienced these blessings, they had community, When they leave, Peter says they're worse off. So look at verse 21. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So what makes their situation worse than someone who never heard the gospel, who never came to church? Okay, what makes their situation worse? What makes their situation worse is that they have been inoculated to the truth like getting a vaccine. And again, all of us know what that is now because of the pandemic. But see, they never had a converted nature. 
And so these false converts, when they came to church week in and week out and even got involved and participated, as they heard sermons week in and week out, went to Bible studies, even experienced the blessings of being in a church and community, what happened was rather than building, uh, being built up in the faith, they got inoculated to the faith. Again, like a vaccination. And many of you here, you know what a vaccination is far better than I do. You're in medicine. But a vaccine is putting into the body a weakened form or just a part of the virus, right? That's what it is. So you put this weakened form or just a part of the real virus into the body and that creates an immune response so that the next time the body encounters that same virus, there's a barrier. The immune cells within your body will begin to attack it. There's a barrier. So for the false convert, the virus they have been vaccinated to is the gospel. That's the virus, the truth of God's word. The blessings of God within his kingdom, they've been vaccinated against that. And then every time they experience it again, they're getting their booster shot, another booster shot. So brothers and sisters, it's actually pretty dangerous to come to church week in and week out. Now don't get me wrong, please come to church. I'm not saying don't come to church. The issue isn't about coming to church. That's not what's dangerous. What's dangerous is coming to church with a hardened heart an unconverted nature, week in and week out. Because what's happening is that you're getting vaccinated and then you're getting boosted. And then you get boosted again. And then you get boosted again. And nothing is penetrating your heart. Now again, we want non-believers here. Everyone is welcome. Please invite your non-Christian friends here. But the key is, is that they must have an open heart. They must have an open heart. And it's something that only God can give them as God begins to draw and woo them. But they must come with at least some receptivity because if they don't, then again, they're getting vaccinated and boosted against the truth. So it's not only faith that grows in the church, but unbelief can also grow within the church. Both grow together. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said in the parable of the wheat and the tares, they grow together in the kingdom of God until the final judgment comes. But in the church, in the kingdom of God, both faith of the wheat, which are believers, and the unbelief of the tares, which are these false converts, they grow together. So as you sit in church with a hardened heart and unconverted nature, you're gonna grow in your unbelief. God forbid, but you could be a tear growing in your unbelief every week coming to church until finally it reaches a point where your heart is impenetrable. And so Peter says this, the writer of Hebrews said it, they are lost forever. Nothing will reach them. So in other words, once they come to church and then after a season they leave and then they hear the gospel another time, they go, oh yeah, I've heard that before. How many of you guys know people like that? Oh, I've heard that. I've heard that stuff. Church, come to church? Oh, I've been there, done that. Bible study, been there, done that too. I remember one time I was doing evangelism at the airport LAX. This is when I was younger. I don't do stuff like that now. <laughs> I should. But I went to the airport with a, a team and we were evangelizing. And I remember I met this like 40-something-year-old man. I was only in my 20s, so he was much older than me. And I was just trying to share the gospel. And everything I said, he had an answer. He just knew his Bible. He had the answer. But I could just tell he was a very bitter man. And then eventually he's like, he's like you know what? I've heard it all. Thank you. No, thank you. And that was by far the hardest person I've ever talked to. And he knew the Bible. He's been to church. Unfortunately, he was vaccinated, boosted up 100 times. Peter says that's far worse. 
And how did it all start? It all began with seductive teaching that drew them to Christianity, but never converted them. It brought them into church, but never brought them to true saving faith. And this is why God's judgment is so fierce. It is so strong against false teachers and seductive teaching. This is why Peter reminds us again and again. So then we're going to come to a close, but then what is the only answer, brothers and sisters? The only answer, the only antidote to seductive teaching is to have a new nature. Amen? You must have a new nature. And so the antidote for seductive teaching is the new birth. So again, Peter implies this, 2 Peter 2.22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returned to his own vomit, and the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So here, if the problem with the dog and the pig, going back to their filth, is that they are dogs and pigs, if that's the problem, then what's the solution? They need to stop being dogs and pigs, amen? They need to have a different nature. And that is, in fact, the only solution. Now, at times, a believer, because of their old nature within them, they will act like a dog, even though they are no longer dogs. They will act like a pig, even though they are no longer pigs. So you guys know you can leave your sin and then go back to that. You can be washed clean of the mud and then go back to that. So there are seasons of that, but they will not stay there. They cannot stay there. Why? Because their nature has changed. So you're no longer a dog. Let's say you're a human being. So you threw up and then you remember like how you were before and then now you're sniffing that vomit again and then suddenly you wake up. What am I doing? I'm a human being. Human beings don't lick up their vomit like dogs do. You're washed of your mud and then you kind of go back to where you were before. You're thinking about your previous life and then you're rolling around in the mud. And I know it could be fun, right? You're rolling around and then suddenly you wake up. Wait a minute, I'm a human being. I am not a pig anymore. So then you wash off again and then you walk go on your way. And so they cannot stay there. They cannot stay there. Why? Because they have a a new nature. In fact, it is unfitting to stay there. And so Peter has already given this solution in his letter earlier in chapter one, but he has already laid this out. But this is the antidote for seductive teaching is you need to have a new nature. And once you have a new nature, then there are a few things that Peter mentions that you will have. First, you have a divine nature, a divine nature, he mentions that in 2 Peter 1.4. I'm just going to mention these, unfortunately. By which God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So once you are truly converted through faith in Jesus Christ, and by the way, isn't there anything, is there anything greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ that by no effort of your own, through no striving of your own, Jesus paid the penalty for you and then he lived a perfect life for you. And because of that, now you have forgiveness and acceptance with God. You have the Holy Spirit within you. This is the gospel. Because of that, you have a new nature. Peter says you have a divine nature. You know what that means? You're like Jesus now. You have this Christ-likeness. So for the true convert, It's not like you have to go somewhere and try to become a good Christian from scratch. A lot of believers feel like that's what they're doing. I gotta be a good Christian through striving, starting from scratch. No, it's more like just let what is already in you grow. Like being handed a beautiful succulent plant. We have a lot of plants in our house, a lot of succulent plants. But just let this plant you received as a gift, just let it grow. That is the new nature within you. 
And as soon as that begins to grow, then things are gonna change. You're gonna have a new relationship with sin. Amen? Why? Because you have Jesus' nature. Jesus has a radically different relationship with sin than you used to have. So you have a new relationship with sin. Brothers and sisters, if you say you have a new relationship with God, but not a new relationship with sin, you don't have God. You simply don't. You know, recently in my life, as I've been struggling through some things in my life, I was convicted of this in a new way. But lately, I've been saying this phrase over and over in my head, but without obedience, I have nothing. Now, I need to qualify that, right? I don't mean that I'm striving to be saved. I'm not earning my salvation. That's not what I mean. I'm not saying that I need to obey in order to be accepted by God. That's not what I mean. I already have those things. But what I mean is without obedience, I will have no clear evidence of true salvation and true acceptance from God. I cannot have this ongoing intimacy with God. I cannot have the power of the spirit upon my life. Without obedience, I have nothing. And I was recently convicted of that because of some struggles in my life. Without obedience, I have nothing. What is that? That's a new relationship with sin, brothers and sisters. So do you have that? Peter mentions something else, but you have a divine power. It says in verse, chapter one, verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So not only do you have this new nature now, like the nature of Jesus, but you have this new power, and how does that show? Through new desires. This is the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you have new desires? Did something change in your life when you came to faith in Christ? Did your, not only thoughts change, but did your desires change? I remember John Piper had this powerful phrase that he would repeat, but if you have a decision for Christ, but no desire for Christ, you don't have Christ. You don't have Jesus. You need to have transformed desires. You know, along with that quote, I remember Piper one time was talking to a man at his church who left his wife, was committing adultery, and was about to divorce his wife and go and be with this other woman. And no matter how much Piper was pleading with the man, please repent, please don't do that. Come back to your family, come back to your wife. He's like, no, I'm not happy there. I'm happier here. And then finally, he got to a point, Piper got to a point where he said, you know what, I need to say this. If you do not repent and go back to your wife and you continue in this sin and then you die, there is no guarantee you'll be in heaven. And that man was completely shocked. What do you mean? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace. Piper's like, no, you have no guarantee you'll be in heaven. Why? Because the evidence of salvation and a new nature is you have new desires. You just can't do something like that and be fine and then live your whole life and then die. If that happens, you might not be in heaven because you have no evidence of a new nature. So I completely agree. Going back to the other statement, without obedience, I have nothing. What evidence do I have? How do I know I'm truly saved if I'm just living completely like everyone else? If I'm like that pig still loving the mud or the dog still licking the vomit, what evidence do I have? So there must be new desires. And then finally, brothers and sisters, perseverance. Perseverance. This is the third evidence of this true conversion. Peter said in verses eight and 10, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And so here, Peter is saying, if you want to know if you're truly saved, then you're going to persevere. 
Okay, you're not gonna leave the faith. You're not gonna suddenly go and then turn and get off the track, but you will persevere. And I wanna close with this, but this perseverance is not something you're gonna have to do alone but this is a perseverance that Jesus has bought for you. So yes, we talked a lot about false conversion. We talked a lot about people abandoning their faith, but ultimately, how do you know you're truly saved? You never will abandon the faith. True converts and true believers in Jesus Christ, no matter how many times they drift away, no matter how many times they fall into sin, they always, always come back. And that's been my story for 30 years, is no matter what happens to me, I just come back. I can't help it. I have to come back. Without Jesus, I have nothing. Without obedience, I have nothing. I must come back. That is the work of God. And so ultimately, this rests on God. If he has truly saved you, if you're truly converted, you will come back. You will persevere. It says in John 10, 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one, not even themselves, will snatch them out of my hand. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Romans 8.30, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he will glorify. Amen? So you will persevere. So ultimately, brothers and sisters, this is everything. You must have a new nature. And once you have that new nature, then everything works. This is how you're gonna avoid Seductive teaching, this is how if you were under seductive teaching, you're gonna come out of it. You know, we're gonna truly close with this now, but I remember hearing recently an evangelist, I believe he was in Romania, and he was sharing the gospel. And as he was preaching, he was just preaching his heart out, there was a crowd forming, and I remember he just shared this powerful illustration. It was kind of a funny illustration, but he said, imagine being a little caterpillar. And he said, imagine this caterpillar wanted to fly so, so badly. So then one day you pick up this caterpillar and you say, okay, you want to fly? And then you put a little cape on the caterpillar. You draw a little S on his chest, right? You're Superman. And then you take this caterpillar all the way to the top of a tall building. And you're like, all right, go. And you throw the caterpillar off the building. What's going to happen? Right? It's going to die. Splat. Whatever it was striving to be, ultimately it's going to go back down to where it was. And so that is the person, no matter how much you're wanting to strive and follow these things and actually do what you think God is commanding, if you don't have this new nature, you're going to all fall back down to where you were. But if this caterpillar, as you're holding it in your hand, it suddenly sprouts wings and it becomes completely something different, and then you take it to the top of the building, and then you let it go, it soars, amen? And so I believe that's the picture that Peter is trying to paint here is you need to have a new nature. If you're gonna avoid these false teachers, if you're gonna persevere, if you're gonna love Christ and endure, if you're gonna have this power and these new desires, if you're gonna soar, you need to have a new nature. So let's just come before the Lord. Let's just bow our heads. I know we went a little long today. but do you have a new nature? Have you truly repented of your sins and accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if some of you here are not clear on that, I would say just stop everything. 
Don't even sign up for a ministry team. Don't come out to any of the outreaches. I would encourage you to keep coming to church and maybe even go to CG because people there can help you. But I would just say stop. And you need to settle this in your heart. Are you truly converted through faith, repentance and faith in the gospel that Jesus saved me a sinner through his life, death, and resurrection? Through no effort, no work of my own, Jesus saved me. Do I really believe that? Do I have new desires? And brothers and sisters, if you truly are converted, you will see new desires. It's not even about you don't want to do certain things. You're going to want to do new things. But do you have new desires? If somebody called you up and said, you know, there's a long lost relative and this person has an enormous inheritance for you. And this person wants to meet you today at this location. If you really believe that message, it would change your day. It would immediately change everything you're doing. See, that's what belief does. That's what genuine belief in a message does. That's the belief you need to have in the gospel. Do you truly believe that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, saved you? He has given you everything, eternal life and abundant life here and eternal life to come. Do you believe that? So let's just come before the Lord right now. Let's, let's just spend a moment, just a, a minute or two.